at 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 8 to 20 on page 384 in the Pew Bibles. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Azariah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Azariah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kia. Challenging <laughs> with all the names. I just wanted to also just let everyone know uh, that there will be cake for Sergio and Hillary uh, following service, but it, it really is great to see you. It's been really great to see you around the church and uh, just to have you part um, and getting to know you over the years has been really awesome too. One recent podcast I was listening to this past week, I had the theme called Choosing Wrong. Choosing Wrong. It was all about people making willful decisions towards making the wrong choice. One story was about the NBA legend, Wilt Chamberlain. This is the Wilt Chamberlain who scored 100 points in a single game all by himself in 1962. 
The wrinkle in his story, though, about being such a dominant, amazing figure, over seven feet tall, was that he was an atrocious free throw shooter. A free throw is basically when you are in the act of trying to shoot, someone comes and bumps you or hits your arm or something like that, and you get to go to a designated spot and take a certain amount of shots for free. He was absolutely horrendous at this. It would have changed his statistics by the thousands, even tens of thousands, if he was able to up his percentage of free throw shooting. One year, he finally acknowledged it. One of his teammates on, uh, on the same team that he played for, who was a legend at free throw shooting, actually known as one of the very best in NBA history, Rick Barry, came alongside and he said, look, this has got to stop. You know, all you have to do is follow my technique, which is shooting underhand from the free throw line. So for one season, Wilt Chamberlain, this dominant player, shot underhand, changed his statistics wildly. And yet after one season, inexplicably, he switched back to shooting the other way, two hands over your head, trying to guide it in. In his autobiography that he wrote after his career, he acknowledged it was the wrong decision. He acknowledged it. This was the wrong move to make, and yet I had to do it because I didn't want to look so goofy. What changed his mind, what changed his outlook, what changed his statistics, and even the way that people played against him, because he was so bad at free throws, was they started hacking him. They started just fouling him because they knew this man cannot make his free throws. This is a way for us to stop him, was just to get him to that free throw spot. He won't be able to make it. It was the wrong decision because he didn't want to look bad. You know, I love sports because sports often mirrors life. And for us, you know, as I was listening to that story for myself too, how many times have I chosen wrong or willfully turned a blind eye because it might look bad. You might look bad. This has been a hard week of getting this sermon together, of uh, doing the work towards this, and then thinking outwardly of what's going on in the world. Well, that's a huge question because so much has been going on in the world. We've seen wrong choices played out. We've seen it on the internet. We've seen it on television. And yes, we can blame it on poor training. We can blame it on racism. We can blame it on senseless violence. These would be true indictments. And yet underlying all these issues is still that we are very much a broken people. We are a broken world. And we are marred by a refusal to admit that. We are marred by it. And as now, as in the past, a whole nation was marred by it, of knowing right and yet choosing willfully wrong. The nation of Israel, led by king after king after king, they had split into two nations, one north, one south. And in that context, the kings led the nation astray. The North Kingdom completely just off the rails immediately. The South Kingdom, there were 
mainly awful, awful kings. Maybe politically, they did all right. Maybe they were able to expand the city. Maybe they were able to expand the zone of the nation. And yet, spiritually, the true indictment that we see in in 2 Kings over and over again is he did not follow the way of God. He did not walk in the ways of David. And every so often, we catch these glimpses, and they're so refreshing. It's like an oasis in a desert. Such and such king followed the Lord. Such and such king was like David, did not turn to the right nor to the left. But it got to the point where there were just so many awful kings. There were little flashes of reformation. There were little flashes of revival. You know, there was one king, Hezekiah, tore down all of these things called high places, tore them down, you know, got rid of things that were in the temple that made its way into the place where you worshipped God. And he tore them all down, and yet he had this son who, when it was his chance to rule, brought it all back. Brought it every single thing back. And if you were traveling in this time, if you were maybe a person who had just turned to Judaism and maybe you wanted to check out the temple, or maybe you were a business person and, and you wanted to see, uh, you wanted to travel to Jerusalem, you would pass by all of these things, and maybe you had heard. And you might wonder to yourself, I thought this nation was called to believe in one God, and one God alone. I thought that was the deal with this nation. And yet, as you would travel towards Jerusalem from all of these different areas, you would see high places erected to the worship of Asherah. You would see a little grove of sticks that were were placed there, these poles that were placed there, where they would worship this goddess of love and war, the mate of Baal. And you would see all these different things there. And maybe if you were coming from a certain location, you would pass through the Valley of Hinnom. And you would see there a structure called Topheth. And you would wonder to yourself, how could this nation called to follow one God do that? This one structure was a big furnace where people would take their kids and offer them up to the God of Molech. And they would sacrifice their kids in this furnace. This nation that was called to follow one God. There were things set up to the God Baal. Solomon had introduced different gods that kept reoccurring over and over again. Ashtoreth of the Sidonians, Chemosh from Moab, Milcom from the Ammonites, and maybe coming from Bethel, from that northern kingdom, you would see there's this one prominent altar that Jeroboam, the first king of that tearaway nation, had set up so they could worship God in their own way, according to their own practices, and not according to what was written and what was prescribed in the Bible. Once you got into the city, it didn't get any better. If you were walking into the gate that was dedicated to one of the, uh, one of the governors of Jerusalem, you'd walk through that gate and immediately you would see a structure that was dedicated to gods. You would head into the temple and it would get worse. Right into the temple, you would see these horses that were dedicated to the sun. You would see men devoted to their worship of Asherah. You would see these beautiful tapestries, and yet these weavings were also dedicated to worshiping these other gods. And that was the context that we see Josiah. 
the summary of Josiah's reign. Here's a king who's like David. Didn't turn to the right, didn't turn to the left. And he became king when he was eight, eight years old. And the reason he became king at such a young age was because his dad was a complete catastrophe as a king. Two years he reigned from when he was 21, and then he was assassinated. His grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, wasn't much better. Manasseh, as I had stated before, he came and he brought in all these things back in a rush, just made everything worse all over again. And this is the context that Josiah walks into. And you would be expecting to read, Josiah was like his forefathers. He led the nation astray. But no, here's this blip. One of the things that we see about Josiah is he's a good guy. He's just a good dude. There's something in him. He wants to deal fairly with people. He trusts people when people are doing the things that they're supposed to. You know, all these things are, are in him as a king. You know, what we see at the beginning of this narrative is this little window into understanding what he's like. And so he calls his secretary, this person that he trusts implicitly, the person who would write down all the things that he needs him to write down and trusts him to do that to the T. And he calls him and he says, look, these people need to get paid. The temple has been in disrepair, and now we're, we're in this renewal phase of the temple. We're going to rebuild it. There's some masonry work that needs to be done. There's some wood that needs to be taken out and replaced. And so what I need you to do is, is go and tell Hilkiah the priest these specific instructions. And the instructions are take the money, count it, distribute it to the overseers, get those overseers to distribute it to the people, and also remind them, hey, by the way, out of this comes the money for all of the supplies that you need as well. And he says, look, and they don't need to report it back to me. I'm not into micromanaging. Just get them to do the job, get them to do it right. It's going to be great. The temple will be fixed. It's going to be fantastic. Get this little glimpse. We also get a glimpse of how meticulous he is, that he's sort of in the details. And we see that as we see all the names and we see the titles according to names, Shaphan the secretary, Hilkiah the high priest. You know, over and over again, you see these things. And so he goes to Hilkiah and he tells him all these instructions and Hilkiah is straightening up and he's, he's bringing in the monies and he's doing all this stuff and he's counting. And all of a sudden he finds this, this odd little document in the temple. And this, it was sort of customary at that time if you were doing rebuilding projects that things would get rebuilt and different documents would get shuffled around. And this document was obviously shuffled around. And, and one of the customs in that time was they would bury it or they would just sort of put it in, you know, put it in a box, a safe little box, maybe tuck it in the wall for safekeeping. And Hilkiah, he says to Shaphan, he says, hey, um, I found a book. Shaphan and uh, Hilkiah and his, and his tidying up finds this book and he reads it and automatically he sees this is something important, hasn't been seen in the temple, hasn't been read in the temple in years. I better get it to the right people. And so Shaphan comes and Hilkiah says, yeah, everything's been done the way you asked and now now, here's just this extra thing I got to tell you. I found, a, I found a book. You got to check it out. So Shaphan receives it, and he himself gives it a read, and immediately there's an impact on his heart as well. And he says, oh, oh my goodness. I got, I got to take this to the king. And so he takes it to the king, and again, this meticulousness, what he does first, he goes to the king and he says, look, so here are all the things that have been done. The monies has been counted. The people have been paid the supplies are being received, 
And by the way, I found a book. Hilkiah gave me this book. And so the, the king says, read it to me. Let me hear about it. And he unrolls this scroll, the book of the law. And he reads it for the first time in the king's hearing. This book that actually in Deuteronomy we read is supposed to be handwritten by the king himself upon their ascension to the throne. This king is supposed to take this book of the law, is supposed to handwrite it himself in the presence of the Levitical priests, and he's just to make sure that he gets it all right. And of his own handwritten copy, it says in that passage that he is also to read it every single day so that he might not forget his place, the order of how things work, that he is the king, but God is true. He's the one that is truly the king, and there's this order and that he might remember who he is amongst the people, that he isn't too far above them, that he has just been chosen in this office, but he might remember his place. I found a book, and he reads it to him, and with growing horror, he hears of this covenant made by God to his people In Deuteronomy 27 to 30, you could read about it. The blessings and the curses. The curses were, the blessings and the curses were to be read as the people first entered into the land and there's these two mountains and the people were to congregate by these two mountains and half of them would be on one side, leaders would half of them be, would be on one side and half of them on the other. And from mountain, they would call out the curses, the curses first. Follow God. He is the one true God. He's the one who really loves you. He's the one who is jealous for you. He is the one who says to you, you shall have no other gods before me. He is the one who says, all those other gods are false. And this is for your best. And so let's start with the curses, with the consequences. Because if you don't follow me, this is what will happen to you. You will have no haven of safety. Your crops will not come in on time. You will be the last, not the first, and you will be booted around and spoken of with derision and horror. And then the curse, the blessings, and the blessings were to be called out in a loud voice. And the blessings were, you will be in a haven of safety. I will care for you and your crops will come in. And it was an exact reversal of all of those curses. And these are the ways that you shall live, and I shall love you. And you will keep these covenant requirements because we are in relationship. I'll take the majority on myself. I will protect you. I've chosen you from grace because you don't deserve it, but I've chosen you to be my people, and I will do everything that you need. And all I need from you, it's not super hard. It's not out of the realm of possibility is follow these things that I want you to do so that we can live rightly together. You are my people. You are representing what it means to follow one God on this planet. And all the other nations are watching you. And if they see you living rightly before me, you will speak to them the truth of what it means to live in a right relationship with the one true God of the whole entire universe. And this is the situation Josiah is in. I found a book. How ironic. This book that has been collecting dust, 
hasn't been read for years. No one knows about it. I found a book. And with horror, Josiah tears his clothes because he just cannot believe how far they have broken their relationship with God. He cannot believe how far they have strayed from what God has wanted them to do. And in his meticulous nature, he calls together a group of people, a team, a committee, if you will, and he says, look, I need you to confirm this for me. And it states all their names, this list that that Kia had to go through. And it states their names, and it states their titles, and it states exactly what they do, and he sends this people to Huldah the the prophetess, this prophet who lives in the second area outside of Jerusalem. And what I imagine of this prophet is maybe she was getting ready. She's a, you know, just a really prodigious woman, just really great at you know, t- caring for her family. Her husband is caring for the robes. You know, he's the keeper of the wardrobe, so he you know, makes sure that the royal robes are all well tended to. If there, there's anything fraying, he gets it fixed up. And here's this woman, I, I sort of picture her like maybe a Proverbs 31 woman takes care of her family, is a blessing to them. And she's waiting. She's been waiting for this moment because she knows. She knows by God's word to her just how far the nation has gone. And here comes this this group of men. They come to her. It doesn't say that they chose all these other guys, all the other prophets, but they go specifically to her. And they say, Hulda, you have to confirm something for us. We need to know. The king has sent us. And what she says next is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Thus says the Lord of God is the Lord God of Israel, the I am of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me, remember your place, king. You're just a man. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him. You know, and here's this comparison, this point of comparison that is so stark, black and white, This people, you've forsaken me. You burn this incense to these strange gods that aren't real. You keep them in your back pocket like playing cards. You know, maybe you bring it out every so often so you can trump something else. You want to be in control. You've forsaken the one who wants to take care of you. The only one who can take care of you. You've taken up all these awful practices But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, say this to him, regarding the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place, when you heard what I spoke against this place, and all these awful things that are going to happen, I truly have heard you. You know, Here is this phrase repeated three times in a very short period of time, in a short two verses. This is what the king has heard in the book of the law. This is what he has heard from me. And this is what I'm saying, that I have have heard you. 
Good, good, great relationships must include this, this being heard. For those of you who have been in marriages for a long time or been in a good relationship, you know being heard is important. Hearing so that you can act. Hearing so that you can truly respond. My son reminds me of this. He's two and a half. He'll take his little paws and put them on my face sometimes because he'll say, Daddy, and he'll bring my attention to something. And if I give a marginal answer, but my gaze is off in the distance and I'm just doing the obligatory, mm-hmm, he'll take his warm little hands and he'll put them on my face and make eye contact with me and say, No, Daddy, speak. And he'll repeat it. He'll say, look, here's this thing I want you to make notice of. Do you hear me? Make notice of this interesting thing to me. Hear me. And this is how relationships are made and broken. Communication, being truly heard by the ones we love. And here is this king who truly hears God. And it must have been just years before God has been able to say this to a king. Thus says the God of Israel, you know, you've, you were tender, your heart was soft, it was ripe, it was ready. You humbled yourself when you heard these things, these covenant curses. You have torn your clothes. You know, and I don't see Josiah doing it as an obligatory, well, that sounds bad. Better do the customary tearing of my clothes. No, the, the way it's written is just in a genuine response. He cannot believe, he can't believe it, and he tears his clothes. And he says, I have heard you, and therefore you will live in peace the rest of your life. You know, at this point, it's for him. King Josiah, things will go well for you. You will live in peace, and that's great. This actually happened to his grandfather, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was told, hey, you did something wrong. So what he did was he, he, he was showing off to these other officials from a far-off nation, the Babylonians, and he said, hey, check out all the stuff we have. And the prophet came to him and said, that was really unwise because those are the people that are going to carry you off into, in the future. But he said, Hezekiah, the rest of your days, though, will be in peace. And Hezekiah said, yeah, the, Lord of the, word, the word of the Lord is good. It's good. But he secretly thought to himself, and you can read this in 2 Kings 20, verse 19, he quietly thought to himself, phew, it's not in my time. All those evil things that are going to happen, not in my time. And that could have been Josiah's response. Who would blame him? Who would blame him? Thank goodness I've done my part. I've really repented. I feel so bad. And of my own life, I'm going to make it right. But that's not what he does, because in the following chapter, he calls everyone together. He calls all the people. He calls all the leaders, and he has them in his presence. And what he does, what he had for himself, he does for them. And he reads to them, not the book of the law, the whole thing, but he reads to them the book of the covenant, which is a portion. And he calls them back into remembering, this is the way the nation is supposed to live, and this is the way that I'm going to live. And I want to say that before you, before this people. both small and great, he read in their hearing this book of the covenant and he's reforming them, he's recalling them. All these words, he says, I will carry out all the words of this covenant that are written in this, in this book. 
So he doesn't just keep it to himself, but he, he loves his people enough to bring them in and they too enter into this covenant and they have this genuine response and they say, yes, we want in as well. And what follows are 33, approximately 33 different actions the king takes to enact his full repentance on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. And he goes to all those high places and he breaks them all down and he burns them to ash and he throws them in the, in the particular places to utterly desecrate them. He takes the horses that were in that area and he totally smashes them. He takes the weavings, he takes them all down. He takes Topheth, this awful furnace, and he breaks it apart. And he takes some of those ashes and he takes those things that he's desecrated and he takes them also to Bethel to desecrate that altar that was set up there as well. And all these things, all of these years of accumulation of following these false gods, he destroys in totality. In totality. You know, what we are reading here, what we're seeing here is why did God give Judah, the southern kingdom, this reprieve, this moment, this blip of peace when they had broken the covenantal relationship so utterly, so completely that really they should have known that at any point God was going to allow them to just be totally taken captive. Why did God allow it? It's because here is this king fully repentant truly hearing, tender-hearted, utterly humble. You know, the southern kingdom was given this, this moment of grace, even further grace, I should say, because of Josiah's response, a full repentance to God's word. What is this for us? You know, God's grace becomes available through people who truly love God who hear God's word, who have tender hearts and are humble. You know, there is this phrase that has been around that I think we hear, and it's become sort of a catchphrase that we need to take into our hearts more of this idea of living missionally. It's because that's what's happening here. And that's what the call is here, is that if we as believers have been convicted, and if we know God then do we keep it to ourselves or do we bring it into our communities that we are a part of? In this broken world, we bring God's grace to others as we turn, as we turn and as we love God together. And I think this was said in Ashley's prayer, you know, that, that as the people come and see and they maybe come and visit us, that they would see something remarkably different about this community that we have turned, that we are humble, that we are tender of heart, and that we truly, fully love God. Josiah is thorough. He is thorough. He smashes everything. He takes apart everything. And then he institutes one of the most amazing times of Passover which was instituted when the Israelites were taken out of the land of Egypt to remember that God saves. Have this meal to remember, to do it together. 
And so he leads this community to do this together, to remember together that God saves. And this year, this 18th year of King Josiah, this one year, he does all of this. He removes all of these things. And what it says about him in the word is this. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. And there's just an interesting phrase I want to turn our attention to in, in chapter 23, verse 25. He returned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. And what this echoes is the call to the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, with all your strength. And actions speak. Because what Josiah does in loving God is returns to the Lord with all of his, just everything in him, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. It echoes that. It echoes what Jesus told the, this legal lawyer. What are the two greatest commandments? What's well, this? Love the Lord your God fully, as hard as you can, and love others as yourself. And we see that in Josiah, don't we? Loves the Lord fully. He doesn't just keep it for himself, but he brings the nation in and he offers this grace to the people saying, hey, we are so off the mark, we must return. Josiah fully followed God's word, truly loved the Lord. This is what he does. Josiah stood in the gap when the nation, what the nation really truly deserved was the full wrath of God in that moment, not in the future, but in that moment. They knew their consequences, but they had tucked it away in some dusty box somewhere to be found or not found. They had turned and forsaken God for all these other gods that they wanted to control, that they could move around, that they could change for what suited them in any given day. Josiah stood in the gap he recognizes in himself that he has fallen short. But he recognizes that for the nation that we have all fallen short. You know, now maybe you're thinking, so Alvin, what's, <laughs> where's the good news here? Because the curse has still come. The nation's still taken away. And the vision of God that we see here is that God's timing, God's purposes, and God's mercy and grace are in this. Is that what God promises to do, he does. He's faithful to his covenant word. And his covenant word to us is that he would form in us a new heart, that he would write the law in our hearts, that he would send someone to rescue us. You know, that's good news. That's a blip of hope that we see in here. Where else is the gospel in this is that we also know a man who stood in the gap for a people who deserve God's wrath. And Jesus came to this planet for us. And he didn't diverge from his path that led straight to the cross. But he went straight to it for us and he stood in the gap for us. He took upon himself all of the curses, all the curses for us. 
And what's the call to us today? Is that we might be like this. That are, are we tender? Do we have hearts that are ready to really receive what God is, is putting on our hearts now? What are those idols in our lives that we have toyed with, that we have maybe put aside but haven't smashed and made dust? What are those things that we allow to crop up over and over again, but with God's help and with the power of the Spirit that is given to us, that we can demolish and put aside? What people can we bring this grace to that we can be signs, visible signs of God's invisible grace, living sacramentally amongst the people? And these are things that we need to come to grips with as we hear this, as we see Josiah. You know, as a director of family ministries here, who are the chiffons? I wrote this, and it's just on my heart. Is who are the chiffons? Who are the Hilkiahs that, that want to share God's word with another generation, with people who haven't heard, kids who, who need to know? Where are they? Where are the Huldas, the prophetesses, who will speak clearly? They are here. We are can be that, and we are called to it. Let's pray together. In response this morning, we're going to, I want to give you an opportunity to highlight to agree with God of those idols that are in your life. And just in a moment of quietness, let's name those things before our God, our jealous God who loves us and wants the best for us. Lord God, we, we come before you and maybe we've heard this before, we've felt this before. And in this moment, we feel a conviction and we feel a call to do something. And God, yet you know us, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. And we leave your heart all the time. We run away from you and we come and we confess that too, God. And we confess we are a people who, we are apathetic. And we throw up our hands, we don't know what to do, and we'd rather just live in a shell. But God, just empower us, show us the way to move forward. We confess that. And we ask that you would change our hearts. 
Lord, even individually, yes, but as a community too, Lord, help us to identify those idols, those things here that keep us from truly loving you. And as a community, we confess these things. We confess that we don't even know them, but show them to us, God, that we might turn and truly love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.